I want to look at the next slide and return to the question we set ourselves at the beginning. If the buffered self isn't the answer, what is? And look, friends, I, I want to suggest it's time to be bold. Your life is not about you is good news for this generation. It's good news. And, and it, it, it's time to, to stand up for what we believe in this whole area of identity. Because the Christian faith, our faith, holds out a vision of the self which has delivered us and which promises to deliver us on the journey of faith from the world of the ego drama to the world of the Jesus drama. As we saw on Sunday, the prospect, the opportunity to become selves identified as Christian. And in the remaining time, I, I, I want to land on, on two hallmarks of a Christian identity. I know some of us are anxious. We've done the cultural analysis. We want to say, well, what does it look like now to think in terms of my identity as a Christian? And we could say lots about this. It's a wonderful kind of conference topic to unpack. But I just want to land on two hallmarks of our identity as Christians. Do you remember we said, uh, we looked at Acts 11, didn't we? And verse 26, uh, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So the two hallmarks of that identity. First, it has an aboutness to it. There is an aboutness in our identity as Christians. We are about something. Okay? Now, what do I mean? A self that is about a, a good other than itself. It is a self which is oriented away from itself to a higher good still. And, and the 12-year-old Jesus, if you remember, models this aboutness for us. Do you remember? His parents distraught on a trip to the temple in Jerusalem. On the way home, the little boy's gone missing. And there follows a frantic search until when they head back to Jerusalem in desperation, he turns up in the temple, dazzling the temple teachers with his teaching. And Luke 2.49 says, why, why, why were you searching for me? He said to his parents. Or as the foot, uh, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Or as the footnote shows us on page 1029, if you wanted to look at this up, an alternative translation of the Greek, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? About, there was an aboutness to Jesus from his earliest days, you see. Jesus loved his parents. Yes, of course he did. One of his final acts in agony on the cross. One of his final acts is to make sure his mum is properly cared for. From the cross, in agony, he makes sure she's going to be okay because there's no pension arrangements there. 
There's no disability benefit or old age arrangements. And his heart goes out to his mother from the cross to see that she's going to be right. And of course, he came in fulfillment of the Old Testament law, which called him to that duty. But there was a higher good, even than his duty to his parents, to be about his father's business. The aboutness of our Christian identity. The passage we read together uh, on Sunday in Acts reflects this too, doesn't it? Do you remember page 1105, if you have your Bibles there? Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word, spreading the word. So look, friends, when these early believers, our forebears, came under persecution, they ran for them lives. They became refugees. Yes, most of them will have lost everything. And they could have just given up, as I think I might be tempted to, and focused on getting their own lives back to some sort of normality. And that's good. They had families with them. They had needs of their own that needed attending to. But they served a higher good still to spread the news of the Jesus drama around the world. Yes, they would reestablish themselves. Yes, they'd put their lives in order. But it would be in the context of a higher calling still. And here's the thing, Acts eleven twenty six. the disciples were called Christians, first in Antioch. They were called it. They didn't say, I identify as other people identified them because the way they put their lives in order was about, spoke about the one after whose name they came to be called. Christians, they're about Christ. Their lives speak of him. And I think Jago touched a little on some of the issues identified by um, uh, Larry Hurtado in his book, Destroyer of the Gods. Rodney Stark, another book, Rise of Christ. I'd, I'd recommend read one of those. I, I think Rodney Stark's is, is an easier, even more inspiring read. Why did Christianity grow so rapidly and take over the Roman world in such an accomplished way? Yes, people say, I mean, people say because, well, the emperor, you know, Constantine, he became a Christian, then everyone fell in. No, 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 Rodney Stark, a sociologist, says. If you look at the data, Christianity was very well established and growing apace. Constantine went with the flow. Yes, it gave the whole thing, the whole project to push forward. But already, Christianity was exerting a powerful cultural effect across the empire. Why? Because people looked at the lives they built out of their persecution and they saw Jesus. They noticed that they didn't expose their unwanted children and put them out. They noticed that they had the same number of Little girls as boys. 
because of that. Within the Roman moral order, children were the bottom of the heap, the least valuable, the least valuable commodity that you could think about. And so that's why you could expose them where they could be left out and be picked up and trafficked or left to, to die, especially girls, especially the disabled. These Christians come along and they bring these little children because they remember Jesus says, let the children come to me and they bring them to God. And it begins to appear that within their worldview, their understanding of the world, a little child born disabled little girl is as precious and has equal worth with the emperor himself. That's what they didn't like, the Romans. And that is what the Christians insisted on. Every little being, human being, made in the image of God, born in his likeness, precious in his sight, given worth by his word and in his love. Lots more we could talk about, but do you see the aboutness of their lives? And that's our calling too, to be about him. Now, we touched on St. Augustine, the North African theologian, and he put it like this, remember, love God first, he said, and then love everything else for the sake of God, for the sake of, the, of God's glory. If, if, it, if it makes God bigger and more glorious, and if it brings in his kingdom, love that thing, but always for the sake of the glory and the love of God. And of course, he was simply saying in another way what Jesus taught. What is the greatest commandment, his Pharisees asked. Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, Jesus replied, and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see the order? Or even more clearly, Jesus put it like this. Seek first the kingdom of God, he said, and all these things shall be yours as well. Do you notice the order? Now look, some of us here have lost this priority, this sense of priority in our lives right now. We still come to church. We see the good in it. We want it for our kids. We have them. But right now, there are more important goods in our lives. They're consuming our passion our energy, our love for the world, for the Lord, is draining away. You know, my grandfather, he was a fiery Pentecostal preacher in his 20s. I have some of his early notes. He'd give his appeal at the end and it would say, eight converted, three of whom were backsliders. <laughs> I, I actually thought when I was a boy, when I read this, that what he meant was 10 had been converted, but by the end of the night, three had already backslidden. <laughs> and I thought, wow, you know, that was good going. But um, no, no, what he meant was three of those converted, backslidden, of course. 
have been backsliders, but, but what a, you know, he was a fiery, and what made him a fiery preacher also made him a somewhat stubborn and uh, volatile personality. And uh, he had a run-in with the flower ladies or somebody like that at his church, and he stormed out, and he said, I will never set foot in a church again, because that was the sort of chap he was, you see. He, and... Uh, he didn't the rest of his life. Football became his passion. Built a business full of energy. Until he was 65. And I was strumming my guitar, about 15. And, you know, it was the first time when gospel songs were sounding a little like the pop world around us. And it was a new thing. And he looked at me and he said, one foot in the dance hall, one foot in the church, you see. He still held he was a believer, he just didn't go to church. But one foot in the dance hall, one foot in the church. And my mother was terribly respectful of him. Almost all that I could remember, suddenly, Mother Hen rose up. And she said, what do you know about it? At least the boy's going to a place of worship and not, you, not like you, or something to those words. And I, what, he, I, I haven't seen him quite be affected in that way. And he came to church. And then he gave his life back to the Lord in a deep and, and quiet. I remember him standing up and praying sometimes. But he only lived another year. But before he died, he took me aside and he said, don't waste your life like I did, will you, Glenn? Don't waste it. Because you can't get back those years. You, you can't recover the good you could have done. Remember the laws of spiritual physics. God isn't mocked whatsoever a man sows that Will he reap? And friends, I took my foot off the accelerator, just turned 40, a very dangerous time. Very dangerous. I was full on at work. I was consumed with my responsibilities. I was getting a buzz, recognition. You shall be as gods. And my first love began to be reprioritized over other loves and other things. Oh, I kept going to church. Oh, I wanted the best for my kids. But I took my foot off the accelerator for four or five years. And there were things that could have been done there in my family, in my life, that couldn't be recovered and can't be recovered. God isn't mocked. And so... You can't duck the spiritual laws. Listen, everybody, do you have business with God to do about this area? There are folk here, I know there are. You've got business to do. Will you put it right tonight? Love the Lord your God. And love everything else, your job, your own family, all of those attachments for the sake of God. 
Second hallmark of our Christian identity is this, a secure foundation of basic worth. What's your self-worth grounded in? Your job, your status. We've seen how the self-esteem movement asks the right questions, but gives the wrong answer. In Christ, in our identity, we are given an unconditional sense of worth and significance and love that comes from God himself. Let this bring ballast to your soul so that your sense of worth isn't based on what you achieve, but rather what you achieve is because of your sense of worth and based on it. Your sense of worth comes from God because he loved you and he came for you in Christ. And now as a Christian, this is who you are, a loved child of his, whatever you are. You know, sometimes I, I love walking alongside folk in Christian leadership and um, I sit there and I see these particularly young pastors in training and they want to get everything so right and they spend hours and hours and hours on their, on their sermons and, and one little bit of feedback at the door a bit too long or you should have said a bit more about that and, and, and they get more and more tense. They're on a treadmill. Performance. Look, I say, you've got to let God love you. You've got to let God love you. Your ministry has to come out of his love, not be the means by which you earn his love. And one of, one of the tricks here is to get a right understanding of our achievements, okay? And the trick is to separate the value of your achievements as achievements from your value as a person, as a person, okay? So here's the trick, and I'm, I'm gonna teach you a cognitive move that's really helpful in spiritual growth. You go out and make something of God's world. You've got gifts, every one of you. We've got strengths and abilities. You know, St. Francis on his deathbed is said to have said, I have done what was given me to do. I've done what was mine to do. And he looked at his disciples, his followers, and he said, now you must find out what has been given you to do. Do it. And every one of us has work to do to bring our gifts, to go out and achieve for God. And some of us will be standout achievers in some areas. I have a, I have a, a grandson who's an 11 year old and he's an athlete, he's a serious athlete. And he wants to be a great athlete. And I say to him, you go for it and you'll be the best athlete there is. But just remember, being the greatest athlete doesn't make you a better person. 
You come out of that race and you've won and you're preening yourself. Yeah, enjoy your achievement. You're better than those other people at being an athlete. But the homeless person you stepped over, you're no better than him as a person in the eyes of God. Now, imagine if, if we'd learned this as children. I can, I can run. I can run well. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And it's, it's me doing the running. And if I didn't put in the training and the effort, it wouldn't get done. So it's me. And I did it and I feel his pleasure in me. But that isn't the basis my worth, my personhood, that comes from Christ. I run because of my self-worth that's grounded in God's love for me. So will you let God love you? And we say, what, what's that look like? Have you any idea the stuff that was t- spoken to me when I was a kid? Have you any idea what they did to me? You say, let God love you. I, I, I don't underestimate that this is a journey. It's a grace journey. Open your heart to God's grace. Seek the miracle of his grace to gradually restore his love in your heart for you to know it. Open your heart to teachers who will bring the love of God in the word of God Let it speak to your soul. Let his love speak to you in breaking bread. Do you think about that? Drinking wine. I I love to administer communion if I'm ever, when I'm occasionally allowed. You break the bread. What a privilege. It's for you. It's given for you. Take. Eat. The hand of Jesus. This is my body. Take it. It's for you. Given for you. Some of us need to open our heart to allowing God's love to enter our soul through the love of other people. Are you one of those people who doesn't like being given presents? You kind of freeze up somehow. You can't receive it. Now, I know lots of people aren't like that at all here. You love presents. But there are some people out there, and this is a journey. Open your heart to receive God's love for you through other people's <laughs> ministries. Open your heart to Christ. Will you, will you let God love you and build this sense of foundation from which you then go out into the world to achieve for him? And here's the thing. They'll be your achievements. Yes, they're in his strength. Yes, they're in response to his call, but you said yes to that call. I don't know, you know, we struggle with this as Christians at times. You know that thing, it wasn't me, it was the Lord, you know, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. Have you heard the story about the guy who goes up to the chap who's played the piano or the keyboard? He says, wow, thank you so much. That really lifted our service, grounded our sense of worship tonight. And he looks awkward and says, oh, it wasn't me. It was the Lord, you know. And he says, hmm, 
No, actually, it wasn't that good. <laughs> you know, it was the Lord. <laughs> the Lord played it. No, I think it would be better than that. But he said, <laughs> so who played the wrong note then if it was the Lord? And he says, oh, well, that, 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 flat, that, that was me. And what kind of a father, my friends, keeps all the good bits, achievement for himself and leaves you with the bad bits, the mistakes and the errors. That is not our father in heaven who, when you run, wants you to feel his pleasure because you did it. You said, yes, I will, like Mary. Let it be to me as you have said, yes. She said it. And thank God for that. So this allows us, this opens up new possibilities in the sphere of feedback. Someone says, that was a really, that was a brilliant meal there. Say, thank you so much. And think in your heart, I think that was pretty good, actually. I'm really good at this. Do you remember when I, when I said, uh, if, if you were here on Sunday, I said, when I look inside, I see some real strengths. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not you know, embarrassed. I do. I think I'm really good at some things. I hope you think you're really good at some things. Just don't think ever that they make you more important or worthy than others, but let that basic sense of worth that comes from God's grace send you out into the world to find confidence, to make mistakes, to get negative feedback, but then back out again to do better, to serve his will. So look, we've, we've looked at two hallmarks tonight. We've looked at the aboutness of the Christian faith. And then we've looked at the worth of Christian identity. Let's spend some time together just now praying that God will work this in.